time now to welcome in Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. He joins DJ and PK, and Steve is joining us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So, Steve, I want to set your basketball expertise aside and go to the less fun part of the job, basketball CEO and logistics guy, because we've heard these plans to restart the NBA, and one of the plans to minimize travel, which would seem to be a huge problem, is to put everybody in one city. And, for instance, a city like Vegas, right? There are multiple... Uh, hotels that have arenas in them, plus they've got an arena that's built for the NHL there, plus UNLV has an arena, presumably there are high school gyms to, uh, that could be rented out that teams could practice in, maybe you can get some uh, bus company and charter a couple buses for each team. Are the logistics of this, I mean, is this one of the things that sounds good on the surface, like giving athletes uh, in the winter sports another year of eligibility, but when you start digging into it, it gets too complicated. You've been in Vegas when there are multiple conference tournaments going on. That's not the same thing, but maybe it's close. How do you think that would work? You know, I mean, if you're, talk- if you're talking about doing all of the games, all of the playoff games uh, for the Western and Eastern Conference in Vegas, you know, I-, I think that might be a logistics nightmare just in terms of, uh, you know, like obviously we're going to use high school gyms, which – Seems to be that would be a difficult thing. I think you have you've got a couple of big time arenas there where you could probably play games during the day, kind of like a two A tournament game where you have games at twelve, two, four, six, and eight. And if you had two or three facilities, it'd probably work out. I mean, there's some the, the good part about that is it eliminates a lot of travel. Though they are all traveling privately anyway, and so there would be no fear of uh, you know any kind of disease situation or circumstances. But I, I, I kind of like the idea in, in something in a, in a central location where uh, I think the most important thing is that when, you know, 200 million people turn a TV on, there's an NBA game. And I, I think that uh, I don't know financially how this all works with the NBA and the TV contracts, but I'm telling you right now, it'll be must-watch TV. It doesn't matter, I mean, where they really play them. Everyone's going to be watching, whether there's fans there or not. And I, I know the players would much rather have fans there. That's a, that's probably an unlikely thing. If they end up doing this in May or June, uh, I still think we're in the midst of this thing where they're not going to take chances of bringing fifteen or twenty thousand people together. But uh, I do know this: if they do it, they have it, they can market it, and everybody's going to be watching. You've been in situations where you've been a coach and you've had to bring somebody back off an injury and you recognize that it takes some time because you can be off just a few days and really miss out on conditioning and whatnot. So the point for you is how long do you think they will need before they can, once they say we're going to get back at pick the date, so how much lead-in time and workout time do you think they would need before they're ready to actually play legitimate competition? Well, you know, in, in a normal world, you know, they, they, they'll have, you know, preseason camp and, and uh, you know, they'll spend a, come in for a couple of weeks and, and do that. You guys have been a, a part of that a lot. And uh, But I, w- I would think that if everybody had a couple of weeks where they could go hard and do it, I mean, they play, they've got, you know, 50 or 60 games under the belt already. I, I would suspect that most of these guys are taking care of themselves, the ones, at least especially the ones that haven't been sick. And even those, they're probably – 
they're, they have their own, you know, they have their own facilities in their homes. They have access to places that I'm sure that shots are getting up and they're doing certain things, just not in big groups. So I would think that you could pull something off like this in two weeks, two or three weeks, you know, max. Uh, it's not like they're going to have to put in a new offense and new out-of-bounds plays and all that kind of thing. I and mean, that'll come back to them pretty quick. And they can do that stuff. The film part, uh, all, all of that technical part can be done, you know, even earlier than that. Once they get the go-ahead that, hey, let's say it's going to be uh, May 25th is when it's gonna, that's the starting date, or June 1st. And when every, I would assume that every NBA team has been tested. Is that right? Uh, if it has, they haven't gone public with that. We know a lot okay. of a lot of teams have been several teams have been tested. We know the Jazz have okay. been tested. We know the Celtics have been tested. We know Toronto's been tested. But I, I don't think we know that all thirty have. I, it might I mean, be true. I would think that that would be the highest priority. That first of all, we're not even going here until everybody's been tested, and that means personnel, coaches, everybody. You, you know, we, we want a sterile environment where everyone's clean and healthy. So. That has to happen, and once that happens, then then I think that two weeks will be plenty of time for them to, to get ready. And and uh, not like I said, it's it's stuff they've already been doing. It's just a matter of getting some runs in. And again, the thing is, too, you do it slowly. You don't want to get people hurt, uh, kind of like they do in the preseason. So I think two weeks will be plenty of time. And uh, considering, I think a lot of them right now already, even you know, even being quarantined. A lot of these guys have facilities in their homes or on their properties uh, or have access to that kind of thing. So they, they, uh, they, they could do that. I, I, just, I think that's really doable. You know, it's, uh, the stakes are so high because if you talk to people in, uh, in Montreal, you know, the Expos had a really good team. And, if they, and who knows if they'd been able to win it all or not in, 1980, in 1994 when the baseball strike happened. But the Expos had a good team that year. And if they had, would there have been the momentum to build a new stadium or would they have not moved to Washington? And I think we can look at parallels now. And they may be imperfect, but it doesn't stop people from wondering and talking, you know, is Kempo going to stay in Milwaukee? If he wins the title, is he more likely to stay? If he, you know, he's got basically a year and a few months left on his contract now. And, and Milwaukee's just having that kind of season where everything seems to go right. Now, he did have a knee injury and miss a couple games, but it seems like the stakes are high for a franchise like the Bucks. because how often do the, do the smaller market cold-weather teams have a legit shot at a title? Well, you know, I, I kind of watched that and listened to that as well. And, I, you know, I've, I've listened to his sound bites. I've listened to people kind of analyze this and talk about it. And, uh, you know, first thing, I, number one, I, I think he really, really, really wants to win a championship in Milwaukee. And, and that's doable. I mean, they, they, it could happen. Uh, but I will be shocked if he stays. And uh, I, I just think that it, it's a good run. It's, it, you know, there, there's a lot more. These guys have so much going on outside of the game and finding a niche and finding a place that you can live in a, in the United States somewhere that you're comfortable with. Uh, you know, I'm not – he's never lived really in the cold weather, has he? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming he's been in mild climates in Greece and in Europe. I'm not sure other places he's lived. But uh, uh, I think that a warmer weather kind of community – uh, wherever he goes, he's going to be loved and appreciated, and, and, and there's going to be good coaches, and he's going to get taken care of. But I think 
if they don't, well, I think for sure, if they don't win, win something here soon, he, he's definitely gone. He, he wants to go somewhere where they're going to build a team. And they got a pretty good team right now that has been built. But um, my gut feeling is he leaves. And uh, whether they win a championship or not, I think he'd feel a lot better. It'd be kind of like uh, Kawhi, win a championship. I, I did what I was supposed to do here. I brought it here. But you know what? Uh, I'm in charge of my wife and my family and everybody else, and, and this is what I want to do. And that's that's part of the business. I think it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, it used to be uh, somebody left a high school or a college and transferred. It. Everybody got really offended by it. You know, that's just the nature now. College, everybody's leaving. People trying to find the right place for them, and the NBA is not any different. And uh, I, I, just, I just don't see them staying there. So this time... Every year we see a bunch of college kids, the one and dunners, who decide they're going to come out and they've got a bunch of stuff looking forward to as far as individual workouts, the combines and all that stuff. Now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen as far as that goes. But how do you think this is going to affect? We've seen some kids who've decided to come out. How do you think it's going to affect kids' decisions on whether to try the NBA this coming season or come back for another year of college? You know, I, I think if there's ever a year where young men are going to consider all their options and, re, and recognize that they're not even sure right now what the NBA is going to look like and, and they're not sure how they fit in and what the circumstances are. So I, I, I would think that especially guys that are kind of on on the edge there where there's not, they're not sure things. You know, there's always eight, ten guys you just know are going to go to the draft. But guys who think they're going to be late first-rounders or maybe early second-rounders, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that maybe they consider now going back for one more year and so things are a little more stable. Uh, you know, I, I can see that happening uh, where coaches could have conversations, collegiate coaches could have conversations, uh, Agents have conversations with guys. You know what? Maybe this isn't a great year. I'm not sure what, how this is going to all play out. It may be best just to come back to a sure thing. But I think the guys that are going to come out, the top 10, 12, 15, the lottery type guys are probably still going to come out. But I, I, I do believe because of so much unknown uh, that everybody is a, a little bit, you know, we're, we're all a, a little bit panicked in that what, what's, what's happening here, you know? I mean, as part of it, you go – different parts of the country are doing different things. And, you know, finally now everybody seems to be committing to quarantine. And, but there's so many unanswered questions and uh, it, it's, it's hard to make any real important decisions right now about anything because you don't know what's going to happen the next day. And, and so what happens typically people are pretty conservative. You know, I, I have a son that's going to be moving and, you know, all of a sudden he says, dad, I don't know, this is not a great time to move. I said, well, you're going to move because you're going to move. But I said, yeah, it is different. And there are circumstances. I don't know if people are going to be looking at homes right now or wanting to go or do this or that. But uh, everybody's a little skittish. Everybody's not real quick to make decisions and final plans, you know. And I, I, think, I don't think the NBA players are going to be any different than that. I don't think the college players and their families are going to be any different than that. I think there's going to be a lot more introspection, a lot more assessment and evaluations making sure this is the right thing. You know, I, I was with Austin Ains a few weeks ago. He was here watching, uh, watching a game when Fresno State was playing uh, Wyoming, and we spent about three or four hours together. 
and uh, it, it was good. We had we had lunch and we started talking about the league and everything. And I, you know, it, it is amazing to me the the depth and of, of the analytics and the projections of collegiate players. I mean, it is beyond anything I ever saw in synergy. Uh, it is, and when I was coaching, in terms of where they see them, what their ceilings are, what their strengths or weaknesses, and the analytics should just go, you know, they're, they're off the charts in terms of assessment of these, these young people. And, you know, basically he's got a 3% chance of making the NBA. He's got a 17% chance of making a team in the NBA. So a lot of that work has been done by all the analytic experts, so all the, you know, the, the, the franchises. And, but it, for me, it was like, wow, this is a whole other level. And uh, I think the NBA guys kind of know themselves. You know, uh, unlike a, a young man I coached, Paul George, who wasn't even on the draft boards, but had played well late and got in, you know, invited by a couple of clubs to do that. And then he just knocked it out of the park in the interviews and all those kinds of things. And sometimes it's more than just the workout, you know. I mean, these interviews and what kind of character they have, what kind of ceiling do they have, uh, sometimes those things can really elevate a young man in the draft when he hasn't played at a P5 conference, he's never been a first-team all-leaguer, but they looked at him and said, wow, this kid has got a work ethic, he's, he's got all the intangibles that we would want in a player, plus he's grown two inches. So... There's, there's going to be some guys like that every year that come out of the draft that people just kind of shake their head and, hmm, I wonder what. And, uh, and then they end up being pretty good players. So how much do you think uh, Austin and obviously Danny rely on the analytics of college players and making the NFL? And how much do you think they just look at somebody, see and talk to somebody and just know this guy's got what it takes to do whatever it takes to climb to the top of the mountain? whatever the next mountain is, whatever the next hill is. You know, uh, I, I will say this first, is uh, it seems like every NBA team has two, three, four, five people doing this. And so it, and it's been around long enough to know that they trust the numbers. They trust the numbers. But that being said, you know, guys like Danny and, and even Austin, who's played and been around this game their whole life, there's a gut feeling that you get when you go and watch someone play. We went and watched this young man play, and he had, you know, he was he was a young man that would be projected a couple of years from now, you know. But you got to, you know, he's a freshman. He was six nine, and uh, you could watch him do some things you really like. And Austin would just stop and go, "Ooh, that's not good," you know. And and, and all of a sudden, you know, he, what he's shooting forty eight percent from from the field, but. The shot looks a little bit broke, you know, and, and, and mind you, there's, it's early in his recruitment or his assessment, but a lot of the comments that we had together had a lot more to do with the, the effort and the bounce and, you know, the things that kind of naturally came with him rather than necessarily the technical skills. And even though the numbers, the analytics showed that he's one of the best freshmen in the country, I think when Austin left, he felt like, he, he's, he's, got, he's got to have some time. He, he probably needs two, at least two more years before he can get to a point where he could, could be there. Because he had, I mean, he pulled his phone up, showed me the analytics and projected, and, you know, he, I think he, the young man had like a 7% chance of making the NBA. Well, 
a freshman that has a 7% chance of making the NBA is worth going and watching for a couple more years. You know, they get stronger, they get bigger, uh, they develop a shot, all the things that come with that. So uh, I, I think they, I think it, it always comes down to your gut feeling with your coaches, GMs, all the people that make the decisions. Because if you if you don't have a gut feeling that this guy's even if no matter where, where, where they're, sometimes their analytics may not be great, and, and, and things don't seem to make it, you know. But man, this guy does so many other things that I think that he can help our team. You know, a guy like Marcus Smart. I, I don't even remember watching Marcus Smart play in college, to be honest with you. But you know, he he was a guy. He probably was a really good college player. But you look at him in the NBA, and he's a guy that's just gotten better and better and better. Or a guy like Bruce Bowen, who who I coached every summer for four years. He was a high school player at Edison High School here, who went to Fullerton and went to Europe and played in the G Leagues forever. You know, I, he would have never projected as a first or a second round NBA player, but you know, seven eight years later, he ends up winning three or four rings with the San Antonio Spurs because he figured out how to make a three and how to guard. And it's a specialized league and. They don't need every guy to be a dis- difference maker. They need guys that can do certain things really well, can really shoot it. But if you can get guys that can do multiple things, and obviously they're more valuable, but uh, never know the growth that a player is going to make. And so I-, I thought Austin did a great job there. I mean, it was fun talking to him about it. We watched other guys on the floor, and uh, and then that was re- that was what made that day enjoyable, just getting his feel and sense. And obviously he's around his dad a lot and uh, who has a great mind and obviously was a great player and has been around. So uh, those things are both important. But uh, at, at the end of the day, analytics, yeah, I mean, people need to know that stuff's really, really important. It puts everything in place, and then you go look for the intangibles and the, the chemistry things that make guys really special. I'm wondering here this year, with everything being upside down and we don't know if they're going to be able to have these workouts or in, I guess they can have individual meetings, but they obviously the combine certainly looks like it could be in question. If kids should come out, if they're thinking, well, should I or shouldn't I, should they come out now because the NBA won't have the ability, at least in the combine setting potentially, not to pick at their games. And it seems like we've seen this with football big time. A kid like Matt Leinard would have come out his junior year, would have been the number one pick, but he comes back and he ends up staying because they pick at your game a little bit and they discover flaws that maybe they didn't see when you were younger. So in that way, is this a better time for them to come out because they can't get so negative about the way you play? Well, I think there's more risk for the league if if they don't allow them to work out and don't allow them to do certain things in the weight room and all the other other things that they do. Then there is more risk for the NBA, and and I think the advantage is to these young players that you're right. I mean, the, it, all the warts and issues and you know the the deficient things you are deficient at may not come through in a in a uh, in an interview. However, they've got. At least 25, 30, 40, you know, games that they can watch. So they've got a little bit, but guys do. I mean, that's the thing is that a, a, a young man from his sophomore year to junior year makes significant improvement. And then from his sophomore year, you know, it's, it's a, let's say it's a six eight, six nine kid who was a low post player. Now he's developed where he can bounce it and he can shoot the three. And you know, so you you can't 
project those things, but you can watch a kid shot and you can see the mechanics of it. You can see it, you know, if he's squared and his legs are into it and all of the things. You can still study that on film and know, you know what, I know we're not going to work on it, but I know this kid can shoot. And, and, and it may, maybe the collegiate or wherever he's coming from, uh, statistics prove that out. But I think you're right. There's more probably risk to miss some things on guys if you're not working them out. If you're not, I mean, they'll, they'll obviously have an interview with them. So that will mean they have to watch more film, talk to more people. I know when I've had guys drafted, uh, I mean, I, I get 20 different calls from different people. You know, I mean, it's just like, tell me, tell me about this. Tell me about that. You know, you know from intangibles to, to skill set. And everybody's doing their due diligence. That's the one thing about this league is uh, the, the details of that draft. You know, I mean, people sit there, well, I have no idea what's gone on for the previous, you know, six, eight months where people have been watched multiple times, lots of film, and then crunch all the numbers, figure out where that is. And, and we know that analytics aren't everything. And, and the, the, the things that, you know, the, the effort level, all of those things that you can't really evaluate or you know, put a number on uh, are, are critical in, in a young man's success at that level. And if he's got a motor, uh, that's going to be really important. You know? And if he's got great vertical, that's going to be important. But it, it, I, I think it would be an advantage to the players if you know, some, of the, uh, maybe some of their weaknesses, they don't have to show those. And uh, guys just kind of have to rely on collegiate film. But I, I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest with you. It, it, it's, it's a matter of all the bargaining that goes on before the draft and we're trying to lobby themselves to get into a specific spot looking for a specific guy right now. Pretty sure most of the NBA teams know who the first-round guys are going to be. Probably be harder with the second round. Because that NC2A tournament, that, that is a critical time. And, you know, and I'll give you an example of that. Because, and not that he ended up being a great NBA player because – but you remember when Rafael Ruggio was playing, and he goes for like 28 and 14 or something against uh, Syracuse. I mean, he, he wasn't on the draft board. And, it, and I, there were some things looking at him, maybe a late second-round pick. And, it, and the kid played himself into – he had a body. He had a huge upside, you know. And, they, they, you know, he goes to Toronto as a lottery. And, and so that is the negative for the kids that sometimes guys can really up their stock in the tournament when all eyes, the whole world is on you, and you go, wow. And he did it against Team Oracle, who ended up, you know, they, they knew he was an NBA player, and he just went for 28 and 12 or 14 against him. And he had a huge, giant body. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't last the league more than about six, five, six years. But at the end of the day, that tournament that's not happening – that hurts kids because sometimes they can play themselves into a first or a second round pick. Steve, as always, we appreciate uh, a little bit of time. Thanks for joining us and talking some hoops today. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Be- Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joining us right here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. DJ and PK is brought to you in part by Homie. Buying or selling a home? Homie will give you up to $5,000 back to help you with closing costs and fees. Remember, it's simple to get started with Homie. See more at Homie.com. All right, we'll catch you up to date. Everything we were talking about earlier in the show, we'll do that next. Stay with us. Big Show, Big show with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. Are you ready? You guys ready? 
The kind of car you drive has nothing to do with vanity. Maybe if you buy something that screams, hey, look at me. Like your last several vehicles. No, no. These are driving cars. I have a nice car. It's about the driving experience. It's not about trying to impress anybody because nobody cares anyway. Car people care. They look and they say, hey, that's a nice ride. Uh Nice whip. Whip? Really? (laughs) When was the last time anybody said that to you? Not that long ago. Vin Diesel was there and Gordon was getting ready to race for peace. Turn this up. Catch the Big Show, presented by Mountain America Credit Union. Afternoons from 3 to 7 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. I was so tired. If I tried to get out of bed from Saturday the 14th through Tuesday, March 17th, I kid you not, I could not be out of bed for five minutes without needing to go back to bed and lay down. And it was that Tuesday, St. Patrick's Day, I was thinking, boy, I don't have any of the normal symptoms, but I thought to myself, it it seems to me I should probably get tested. That's Doris Burke. She did get tested. She tested positive. And she is now more than two weeks without symptoms of COVID-19. So she's one of the people who's been able to uh, recover. And Boston Celtics guard Marcus Smart in the same category, uh, both announced over the weekend they've been cleared after more than two weeks without symptoms of COVID-19. But... Fatigue, apparently, uh, one of the signs there, as you hear uh, Doris Burke talk about that. Also, uh, Knicks owner James Dolan tested positive. The Knicks say little to no symptoms, and he is self-isolating. So, there you go. Some of the headlines we have uh, been discussing. Uh, we played earlier this morning uh, part of an interview I did with Mark Harlan. We heard part one on Talking Sports last night, and there was more about football on that. There'll be more about basketball uh, tonight and also some stuff on the uh, stadium expansion up at the U, and that'll be on KMYU Talking Sports. But in part one, we played at PK, and the part that jumped out at both of us was when, he, when I asked him about spring football, and he started talking about five plans, and he also riffed into some of the uh, worries that not just – he personally, but athletic directors as a group have about fall football and how they have to start planning for multiple scenarios there uh, because nobody really knows what's going to happen. The the popular phrase, which comes from people smarter than us, is the virus has the timeline. None of us have it. The virus has the timeline. And listen to Mark talk about that. Like They're literally considering everything's on the table and how do they react to any one of multiple scenarios. Well, yeah, I think first you have to discuss what could possibly happen and pretty much put everything out there. What could it be? It could be from A to Z and everything in between. And just list all the possibilities first, right? So he said he's got five plans or someone's got five plans. And then once you decide, all right, we've pretty much created all the possible scenarios, and so it's five in this case now. We investigate each of those five. What will we do if one happens, two happens, three happens, and so forth, and then come up with this plan, knowing that the plan, even if you settle on five, you feel really good about five different plans. Uh, Within those five different plans, there's going to be things that you can't anticipate. So you're going to have to be flexible within the five different plans. So it's all sorts of unknown, and it's almost like to the point where you know, you go to bed at night and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I going to see when I wake up tomorrow? What's what's tomorrow going to bring? Because it's been almost not necessarily literally every day, but a lot of days things have happened at the when you get to the end that you didn't anticipate earlier in the day. And so I think that's what you have to do here relative to this college football. Plus, 
you know, these are kids whose bodies are still developing and all that stuff, and you have to determine what is best for them in a manner that you've been doing it this way for so many years. Now you get 29 practices, so you count back, and that's when you know you have your first practice in training camp in late July or early August. Well, that could all be out the window, and you got to figure out what is best now so you're going into some grounds where you don't really know because usually in June, you know, that's the time kids are maybe graduating high school, getting, for those who hadn't come early, getting ready to come up on campus and enroll in summer school, and they've got their workout plans and everything. Well, now you may have to change all that stuff for all these kids, and you have to figure out what's the best way. So a lot of unknown, but a lot of preparation going into the unknown, so whenever it comes to pass, that you're prepared for the situation at hand. You know, one thing I think is that uh, Chris Hill told us this story, not when we were on Friday, but when he was on uh, years ago. And it was in the early days of the Pac-12, and I think we were talking to him about how they were ramping up staff, and, you know, the Pac-12 is just a different world. And he told a story about, and and I think this matters now uh, to college football fans, whether you're, you know, Weber State, Utah State, BYU, Utah, whoever you root for, it doesn't matter. He was talking about in the Sugar Bowl, uh, they have a, uh, in the couple nights leading up to the game, the Sugar Bowl, the, the staff and, you know, all the dudes in the, in the funky colored uh, blazers, they go out to dinner with the staff of the, com- of the two competing teams on consecutive nights. So they went out one night and they took Alabama out to dinner in New Orleans, right? And they do their thing. So the next night, Chris was telling us the story about how they were down in the lobby and they get there <laughs> And the guys are talking and they're chatting up and everybody's in a good mood. And he goes, all right, well, we're ready to go. When will all your people be here? And, and Chris is like, well, this is all our people. <laughs> you know, it was Mountain West money versus SEC money, and they just had a lot less staff. And so when uh, – and I think about that because when Mark Harlan talks about, you know, what they're preparing for, all these conferences have different size staffs, so they got different expenses, and then they got different revenue – you know, if, if the SEC loses their football TV contract, that's one pile of cash. If the Mountain West loses, it's another. If the Pac-12 loses, it's another. And then it's all relative to whatever staff you've got. So everybody's got similar problems, but they're also a little unique and different because we know all these teams are in different places financially and all these, uh, these leagues are. And even inside leagues, there are probably teams in different situations. We've read about all this debt UCLA and Cal is carrying, and what the heck are they going to do with that? That's not something other schools have to worry about. Right, yeah, exactly. So, lots of different plans being made. Uh, we've had a lot of reaction to uh, Kirk Herbstreet saying that he can see where uh, putting 100 players into a college football locker room or uh, 53 into an NFL locker room and then bringing out 50, 75, 100,000 fans, he thinks football is going to be impacted this fall. And whether that's, uh, you know, teams playing – and this comes back to the five, you know, multiple scenarios. Uh, teams playing without fans, teams playing with limited number of fans. You could see where you, you could, well, we could sell the luxury suites. Those people know each other, right? And so they could take their own risk. Or maybe we have half the tickets available in a luxury suite, and we let people social distance, you know, 5,000 people scattered across the stadium. But Kirk brings up, do you really want the players in a locker room and on the buses together and practicing and in film rooms together, uh, th- there are just a million things to consider out there. And, and Kirk Herbstreet has his doubts about what it'll look like if the football season happens at all. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, you got all those guys together there. And once training camp starts, I mean, they're just basically living together. Right. And you, you've got the coaching staffs and you've got, you know, you, you go to a football practice and there's 200 people out there basically out on the field when you factor in all the other support staff that go along involved with everything that they have for just just a a single practice it's so many folks that are involved men and women that are doing their thing and so yeah that cannot be accomplished unless it's safe and is it going to be totally safe now i hope to high heaven that the answer is yes because man if we go through a summer and we don't got any we don't have anything and then we're anticipating the start of college football and it's not there and what a blow because i think that of all the sports for me this is just me personally of all the sports i anticipate the return of college football the most and it is something that i am most excited for when it does get here and going down to california uh, in the Los Angeles and Hollywood there and doing the media stuff, then you know it's right around the corner, and you just get so amped up for it. At least I do, and I've been doing this. Man, I've been doing this a long time, but yet I'm still like the proverbial kid on Christmas morning when it starts because it is so much fun. Plus, it goes by so fast, too, and to miss it, uh, that would really take a chunk out of me. I understand there's far more things that are way more important. I get that. But from the sports perspective, that would be a major blow. But obviously safety has got to be taken in priority above everything else. And so when those folks get to that point to be able to make those decisions, hoping for everybody that the answer is, yeah, we're ready to go. Now, I, I, with each passing time, I don't want to say each passing day, that's too dramatic, but whatever your time frame is, is it a week, is it a half a week, is it two weeks, I'm not sure. I'll leave that up to you. But with each each of those integrals that pass, it seems like there's more and more possibility that the seasons can be impacted. You know, I think it's a little bit the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you know, sports isn't that important, you know, the game itself. Now a lot of people count on their jobs for it, so that becomes more important. So many people, employment is tied into it. But I think that from games to restaurants to, uh, I don't know, wherever you might go and socialize, you know, gyms, whatever, you know, lots of places are being impact and, impacted. And I suspect that because it comes down to social distancing, there may be slight differences, but largely, you know, they're all in the same boat. And so if football's gone, that probably means a hundred other things are yeah. gone that impacts people's lives. And that probably means people are getting sick and people are getting dying. So even though it is just football, the timeline is moving the same for all of these issues. And so if one goes well, they all go well. If one goes poorly, then there's probably a lot of things going poorly. No one thing's See, peeled out. See, I disagree. Why? I disagree completely Just that because? sports aren't important. Ah. No, the, no, no, I agree with all the stuff you were saying. I agree with you. But I'm saying the theory, and, we, and you're not authoring this. You're just saying it, what, what we've heard, that, oh, sports isn't that important. I disagree. I think sports are extremely important. The thing that I've always maintained, and you can back me up on this because you've known me for a long time, I've maintained that unless you're directly employed by the outcome of the games, the outcomes of the games don't really matter that much. But the sports themselves, for all the reasons you just said, they do matter a lot. 
So sports is very important. I think where we get out of hand is the result and the outcome of the sports. Yeah. That's where I think, for, for me, they just don't matter that much. But the sports themselves, for all those things, you talk about those restaurants and all those folks that right. rely on their income based on that, it is extremely important. The outcome I think is way overblown, and I've always thought that. I've thought that for many, many years. I'm not caught up in the winning and losing. I'm caught up in the competition and all that goes into it and all of us that benefit because it's a significant portion of recreation, and people need that, whether you fish or whether you watch football or whatever it is. You know, you talk about my brother-in-law. Well, he loves himself college football. He loves college football more than pros, and on Saturdays, he turns on the TV at 10 o'clock. I mean, this is every Saturday. Saturday. He turns on the TV at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he doesn't turn it off until after 11 o'clock at night. And Watch that's this. every single Saturday. That's four yeah. games in a row. Bring on the quadruple header. Yeah. Right. And so that's a legitimate way to exercise your entertainment, however you form, however you choose to do it. So, yes, I believe sports is very important. It's just the outcomes aren't that important. You know, I already regret limiting to restaurants. I really ought to say service sector because anything in the sure, service sector yeah. where you come in contact, and that's a gazillion. I don't even know how many small businesses it is. I, I remember, right. I remember, and this was a few years ago, so the number's probably not even right, but I was talking to the Kent Crawford, who's a general manager at our TV station, and, uh, and he was talking about sales and salespeople and how many clients they can talk to and how much business is out there. He says, do you realize there's like 25,000, and this number might not be right anymore, but at the time, 25,000 likes licensed businesses in Salt Lake County. And that's a lot. Now, now some of those are, are factory jobs, and we know there's trucking companies all along that uh, 201 corridor and all that, but there's a lot of service sector jobs. And anytime you're walking into a place and there's a counter and, you know, that there's somebody across the counter, you're within six feet, you might be touching the same space, all those businesses are impacted, all those owners, all those employees impacted, all the customers too. All right, DJ and PK, uh, coming back, we got some we got some funny stuff on Twitter today. This is going to be great. We will get to that next. DJ and PK, your feedback is coming up, and in some cases, it is hilarious. We will get to that next. Uh, DJ and PK, brought to you in part by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and Sandy. Find your deals online at LHMDeals.com. And it's all over almost here. Don't go nowhere. I have two, two words in the honor of the great PK. Unordained minister and Reverend Kinahan. <laughs> what is that all about? <laughs> Reverend Kinahan? What triggered that? It showed up in our open mic thing early, early this morning. I wonder if it's a holdover from last week and they finally sent in. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> Reverend Kinahan. Well, you always hear he's an ordained minister. Well, I'm an unordained minister. <laughs> Jeez, PK. And it's a famous now promo of ours, too. I know. I you, heard it. You guys did that fast. How did that work, man? Yuck. We'll find out. You haven't stepped on the scale. Oh, I stepped on the scale. <laughs> That's not what it's for. Flatten the curve. Oh, hey, whatever works. That son. would be good. And I don't, I don't mock people's faith if they think that that is something that uh, is going to work. Did I? I did I'm you see? Did you see? And, and a a member of the athletic community who's prominent on Twitter uh, retweeted it yesterday. Did you see the? Uh, I don't even know what to call him. I, I, uh, televangelist, I guess. I don't know. It might have been streamed, not televised, but whatever it was. He, I know. You know I've what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and so he yelled at COVID to go away and condemned it and made it crawl in its belly. And yeah, it's, oh, well, they did that thing where they just banished. Did, they, did, they, did yeah. they speak in tongues too? No, not in, this, not in this. No, one. it was it was two guys. I always find that a little bit of entertaining. I got to admit, it was two guys, and you got to be no one under forty is going to get this. This guy's a televangelist who's pretty famous. I can't remember his name though. I've seen him before. I'll find it for you. So, so you cast out the evil spirits. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. So he did that, and um, and so, but there's there's two guys up there together, and and one guy is just like repeating key words at the end. He's like, he's like the hype man. Well, mm-hmm. and this is why you wouldn't get it if you're under 40. Yeah. But he was Ed McMahon. Honestly, listening to that, I flash back to watching The Tonight Show with my parents when I was a kid. And it was just, you know. Hey man. So you saw it? You saw the actual thing? I saw the thing on Twitter. I didn't see the, 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 right, I saw I the 90 second clip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Were, I they saw getting, it. were they getting emotional? Were they yelling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yelling with their <laughs> eyes closed. He was condemning it to hell. It was. And such. It was if, weird. If you went to a movie and they wrote in a script and there was a televangelist in there, yeah. and I think Steve Martin did a movie about this where he was, uh, he had a tent and he was going around the South, you know, popping up the in jerk? small towns. No, no, no. This is a different movie. Um, and he, uh, it, it's exactly how a guy would be portrayed in the movies if they did it. it it's a total stereotype. Anyway. All right, so other feedback coming in today. Uh, all about Herb Street and, you know, is the football season in jeopardy? Jimmy dismisses it. We all know that Herb Street's the world's foremost expert on infectious viruses. Okay, but then Mark Harlan tells us that ADs are already starting to plan for it. They don't know that it's going to happen, but they feel like there's enough of a chance it could happen that they have to start preparing. Because obviously, that's the single biggest revenue source for athletic departments. Of course, they should oh, be yes. planning for it. I mean, yes. it's, I read a thing recently that those, all these conference contracts we see, 80% of the money is on football of the 100. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we've got uh, Cougar Wire says, at this point, we're all passengers on a train that we have zero control of, so who cares, but it would suck. It would very much suck. Uh, Bad Vinny says, I'm guessing Florida State will just go ahead and crown themselves national champions again. <laughs> all they did in basketball. I see what they're doing there. Uh then we've got, uh, we got people saying, oh, this will be great. This means national titles for BYU in basketball and football. <laughs> I would author that, yeah. I, I, think they go, I think they win a College World Series this year, too. Ute Man G says, well, it would be great for my wallet. Apparently he's spending a lot of money. It would save him a lot of cash. I understand that, yeah. Uh, then we've got uh, off the uh, Mark Cuban uh, saying the NBA might start in May, and there have been, again, multiple plans that that might happen. One of them is putting it all in one city. We asked Steve Cleveland about going someplace like Las Vegas where they've hosted multiple college basketball tournaments at the same time. And Alan says talk of basketball or baseball cities to get seasons in. It, it's just bananas. He dismisses it as bananas. Oh, what does that mean? It's a waste of time. We shouldn't be doing it. We should be focusing on others, or it's just so crazy. It's, a, it's I think, like a bunch of bananas. Well, it, I, I gave you every word. I took it as uh, there's going to be so much social distancing going on that we're not going to be able to play sports for a while, and they're just they're not going to get baseball and basketball in as much as people would like to. It's just not going to happen. Okay, that very well could be the case, but they're not going to take away my hope yet. Exactly. We'll stall on that for a while. 
All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Tony and Austin are coming up next. We will see you tomorrow. A-Rod will be here tomorrow, right? Yeah, so let's have A-Rod tomorrow morning. All right, nice. We'll talk with A-Rod. We'll talk a little uh, BYU football and talk recruiting with him. DJ and PK, we'll see you tomorrow on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone.